Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Speaking here from inside the bunker, you're listening to episode 132 of Love That Album. We're here to provide you with a little bit of comic relief or musical relief, I should say, in these troubled times. So hope you're keeping safe. Hope you're keeping well. If you're self-isolating, then we'll provide at least a good hour and a half to two hours worth of musical talk for you about all sorts of humorous things like violence and bad dreams and all sorts of things like that. But we'll get to that in a moment. But I'm not doing this alone. I've got some wonderful people on the other end of a Skype connection at the other end of the world. And they're 18 hours behind me. I'm in the future. I have seen their future. I know what is happening regarding coronavirus, but I can't reveal it to them just yet. So on the other end of this Skype connection, I have representing all-time top 10 podcasts, representing lovers and poets, but we know them and love them as Ben Eisen and Shannon Hurley. Welcome to Love That Album. Them, guys. Hey, Morris. Hey, Morris. How's it going over there? <laughs> it's Friday the 13th over here, so we're just, just trying to get through this day. Yeah, and please we'll tell us it's a good future because it's Friday the 13th here. We made it to Saturday the 14th, which should have been the sequel <laughs> to the first film, but... <laughs> <laughs> Keep we, going through the, through the calendar, I think, at this point. I don't even know how many sequels there are, but it, it would be like Friday the 27th or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your arithmetic is good, I approve. Hey, <laughs> I had to do that real quick in my head. Anyway. <laughs> We're here to talk about Wilco and their album Summer Teeth, which was yes. released 21 years ago this week. It hadn't even occurred to me when we programmed this episode for this month. I'm looking forward to talking about that and how you guys celebrated the 21st anniversary, because I'm sure that you danced around the apartment and sang all sorts of Wilco songs, but we'll get to that shortly. But before we do, let's just talk a little bit about the world of lovers and poets, because I'm sure that all our listeners out there are well familiar 
with all-time top 10 podcasts. And if they're not, they should be. But what's happening in the world of lovers and poets? Um, we just played a show last night po- after the coronavirus. I went to Trader Joe's, the grocery store, <laughs> and there was maybe 10%, 15% of the items still on the shelf. There was almost nothing left in the store. And then I went right to our show and Shannon joined me later. This some, was some- after the announcement of, you know, everything being postponed and rescheduled and canceled. Mm-hmm. But yet, for some reason, our show still went on and I wasn't too happy about it. But we <laughs> we ended up playing it anyway. And there was actually a semi-decent crowd there. Everyone was bumping elbows. Whoa. <laughs> That's the new handshake, bumping elbows. Yeah. And people were just kind of making the best out of a, a bad situation. I thought possibly they should have canceled it, but it went well. So Lovers and Poets, we have our new EP that's been out for, I don't know, six months. Months, It's called Sugar High. Recently getting more spikes of uh, streams on Spotify. So we're happy to see that. Our song Never Gonna Stop is getting put on a lot of playlists. never going to stop. I think the title kind of came from oh, the Wilco song that we're going to hear in Summer Teeth. Oh, because it's, it's spelled it's all the, in one word. Ah, <clears throat> oh, right. Okay. Wow. Another Wilco connection. Never going to stop again. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things are going well. We, we're working with uh, our friend Rick Torres of Supreme Beings of Leisure and uh, the English Beat. He's one of those Cantor's Kibitz Room folks. Right. We're working with him on a new track. A little more guitar flavor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're also working on a cover of a famous Genesis song that I'm currently in love with I am absolutely obsessed with the song right now there's no reason to, to try to hide it we're doing a it's follow you follow me oh nice lovely song so we're doing that yeah I don't know about any more live shows anytime soon yeah. we, we hardly ever play any live shows anyway but we are definitely in the studio working on more stuff and we have a website loversandpoets.com where you can hear stuff from our first two full-length albums and our EP fantastic I'll definitely be putting links on the show notes for this to you stuff so and i wholeheartedly recommend that uh, the listeners out there go and search out their music it's absolutely wonderful now I, I think last time maybe not last time we spoke but an earlier time when we spoke and i should say actually this is the first time i'm getting both of you on the show at the same time but on one occasion when i spoke with one of you there was a lovers and poets song i don't remember which one it was but the film clip i found extremely disturbing i was i tied up in a chair yes goodness. you were doing a mr blonde i think you were you had a, a, a can of kerosene there that was a little bit distant. Yeah, the, the dark mind of our director, Matt Dynan. <laughs> <laughs> He's a strange fellow. Only Bitterness Remains is the song if you want to see that clip. And then All Time Top 10 is, is uh, going strong. Actually, this coming Monday from the taping of this, I will be releasing episode 400. Wow, that is quite an achievement. I, I can only dream of getting to 400. I might have to have another lifetime, but... <laughs> it's a sickness at this point. You just have to keep doing it. Right. By the way. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Too yeah. soon. Forget the sickness part. No, no. Uh, that's insensitive. Anyway. Oh, yeah. But, but Morris, you are going to be a guest on episode 402. Two, yes. We're recording that a week from now. And I think it's going to be quite an appropriate subject matter. We're going to be talking about all-time top 10 cathartic albums. We've got to clarify that that's catharsis for the creator of the album. Nothing wrong. Maybe it's a separate subject, catharsis for the listener. They hear that song and they feel some sort of relief. But these are songs where we need to know a little bit about the history of the performer and how creating that album gave them some relief from a terrible time or a dark time in their life. So 
happy yeah. stuff. We I tend to get all the happy subjects. <laughs> yeah, we did songs about death, <laughs> songs about hard times. I think I need a, like a all time top ten songs about flowers and daisies. <laughs> you know, that's not a bad idea. Let's look into that for next year. Episode five hundred. At this juncture, what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to take a quick break. Joanne will give the contact details, and then we'll be back to talk about the album released on March 9th of 1999. So it's only about five days before when we record this, the 21st anniversary. Wilco's Summer Teeth. You're listening to episode 132 of Love That Album. Morris over here, Shannon and Ben over there in Los Angeles. We'll be back shortly. A stack of records here, a stack of records there. I got records scattered all over everywhere, but I'm... We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes of Love That Album at lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. Through the records, an hour or two, and I've about decided what I've got to do. See here. Music and movies. Movies and music. Join Morris, Tim and Bernie every month as they discuss music-related movies iTunes, Facebook, or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com. The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. out. back from break thanks for hanging out with us you can do it without getting ill remember the times where you could get a virus from the internet we don't talk about that anymore yeah i wonder if this is going to end all of the use of the phrase going viral 
I'd be quite happy to see that phrase excised. I wouldn't be too sad about it, yeah. No. Anyway, Boris over here, Shannon and Ben over in Los Angeles, and we're talking Wilco this time around, Wilco Summity. And it's interesting, this is not the first time that you and I have talked Wilco, Ben, because that was the subject of a, a previous all-time top 10 podcast, our all-time top 10 Wilco songs. That was back in the days where all-time top 10 was, in fact, 20 songs. It used to be two top 10 lists. Now it's only one, for brevity's sake. You know, I was struggling forever to find a way to get the episodes under control time-wise, and I took drastic measures, but I did it. <laughs> well done, you. Painful to put those lists together, though, with only five songs each. Tell me about it. I don't know how I'm going to cope next week. That means that we have just the creme de la creme. All right, let's talk Wilco and Summer Tea. It really is incredible to think that it's been 21 years since uh, this album got released. Ben, because we did the all-time top 10 episode, I sort of know that you're a long-time fan, but I'll, I'll put it to you first, Shannon. I want to know what your history is with Wilco as a band. Are you a long-time fan? Do you have a connection just with this album? Yeah, it's basically with this album. I didn't really know Wilco until about 2001, and that's because a mutual friend of Ben and mine, uh, his name is Nathan Payne, <laughs> he had me keep his CD collection while he was traveling, so I would just like raid his CD collection, and I would listen to this album in particularly but I really fell in love with it at that time and it was really the only Wilco album I knew for a long time and it's still my favorite that was their most recent album at the time yeah this it was before yeah. Yankee Hotel Foxtrot yeah it was just before I know that previously when we spoke about Wilco on all time top 10 Ben you did mention that you and Shannon had watched I Am Trying to Break Your Heart which was the documentary that came about as a result of recording Yankee Hotel Foxtrot so I want to ask you Shannon did you gravitate at all towards that album about the time at least after watching the film or even when it got released? Yeah, I did finding Jay Bennett's role in the band having more admiration for what he did with the band so I, I still consider Summer Teeth my favourite album but Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was, I think that's an, an incredible album too and, and just a little different I always thought that if I held you tightly You would always love me like you did back then then I fell asleep in the city, kept blinking. What was I thinking when I let you back in? And I'm still not quite as familiar with it. I should go back and delve into it. Mm. Ben, now I think previously when we spoke about Wilco as well, you had mentioned that you weren't necessarily a huge fan or maybe not as familiar with a lot of the latter-day Wilco albums or maybe not necessarily as much as a fan, certainly beyond, say, Wilco, the album. Now, in recent years, they've been putting out albums on a smaller label, I think it was Anti, and you know we've had albums like Star Wars and Wilco Schmilco, which was their tribute, I'm guessing, to Nelson Schmelson. And even recently, they've gone and put out a new album, which, oh, I'm trying to recall, but it's obviously one I haven't bought yet, but I've got everything up to Wilco Schmilco. So I just wanted to sort of find out whether in recent times, whether you'd gone more through the latter-day catalogue. The newest album is called Ode to Joy. That's the one, yes. It's from 2019. You know, I'm ashamed to say I still haven't. For a lot of bands, like a lot of people, I get into this kind of rut. I just love this one period so much that just like <laughs> anything that comes after doesn't sound as good to me. I think for me, Wilco, the album was a turning point. I, mean, I thought that Sky Blue Sky was just phenomenal. Yeah. And I know a lot of hardcore fans didn't like it as much. With the sky blue sky This 
Riding time wouldn't seem so bad to me now. And then since then, it, it seems like they've been trying to get back to getting going darker, getting weird. And Jeff Tweedy is a different person in, in 2019 than he was in, in 2002, 1999. Of course, in many ways, that's better. He's sober, as far as I know. He's not addicted to painkillers and going out of his mind in the studio with Jay Bennett like he was back in the day. Mm. The output is different. I, I haven't heard it as much. It's a shame to say I, I still have not gone really hard into the newer stuff. Well, those albums really are from a different different band because the only constant from AM through to today besides Jeff Tweedy is John Sterrett, the bass player. Right. They didn't settle down into the one lineup, I think, until so like A Ghost Is Born, the album that came after Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and I'm sure that there's going to be someone out there who's shaking their fists at their device and saying, no, you idiot, there's one different musician. They added, is it Nels Klein? Was uh, he on there? Certainly from Sky Blue Sky onwards, the band through to today has been the same lineup. And in fact, Kicking Television, the live album, that was the introduction of Nels Klein to the band. <laughs> They wanted to show off this new band they had and this killer guitar player. And so they revamped all of the old stuff with him added for the live album. i got to tell you a, a Nels Klein story briefly. I think it was 2008, 2009 at the Melbourne International Jazz Festival. One of my very, very favorite jazz guitarists toured here for the first time, Bill Frisell. And he came and did this concert at a wonderful venue here in Melbourne called The Forum. So we're sitting in the audience waiting for the show to start and the announcement came out saying, ladies and gentlemen, before Bill Frisell comes on, please welcome the support, the Nels Klein trio. And I thought, oh, wow, that Nels Klein, fantastic. Oh, that'll be really, really interesting. And for the next 45, 50 minutes, we got music that would have had Ornette Coleman scratching his head and thinking, what the hell is this? This had people scratching their heads and... I think people were kindly saying at the end of the set, well, that was interesting. Nels Klein had his guitar chops to burn and showed why he is a guitarist beyond so many others. But this was not his day job with Wilco. This was a million miles away from it. Very noisy, very experimental, not for me. But the funny thing is when I went online to go and look up other stuff that Nels Klein had done with this trio, it was nothing like that. It was far more melodic, far more musical. from that night maybe he just sort of we'll test the limitations of the audience yeah anyway that was my brief Nels Klein but not Wilco related story so look coming back to Wilco we associate them at least that early period as a 90s band and this album Summer Teeth is a long way away from what else was going on in the 90s a few months ago on the See Here podcast we had a fellow called Sean Katz come on and he just made a documentary called Underground Inc. The Rise and Fall of 
alternative rock. And he spoke about the 90s via the bands, some that we know, some that maybe were less known. And he spoke about bands like White Zombie and Helmet and Clutch, Jawbox and Fishbone and a heap of others post-Nirvana. sort of tend to think of the 90s as belonging to a style of band, grunge band. But of course, the 90s had a lot more going on. I mean, Ben, you and I had we discussed Fountains of Wayne on Love That Album many moons ago, I think. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we so we know that there's a power pop element to the 90s and people sort of associate the 90s with Radiohead and Britpop and there's so much else. But this documentary sort of just focused on that. So I sort of wanted to get your perspective where you see Wilco or, okay, well, let's focus on Summer Teeth. Does it sound to you like a style of 90s album? Was it completely away from what else was going on in the 90s? Or do you think because of the power pop element, yeah, it does sound like a 90s album? Well, I think it does sound like a 90s album, but in the best way possible. Because, I mean, the 90s were all over the place. And there's a lot of crap, but there's a lot of great stuff. And in 1999, when this came out, there were bands like the Wallflowers who were blowing up the radio. And like you couldn't get away from that song, One Headlight. I read that the song Can't Stand It on Summer Teeth was written by request of the label to be like a pop song that they could release as a single to be their own version of One Headlight so that they could blow up like the Wallflowers did. And uh, it obviously didn't happen for them. But stylistically, there's the weird Jay Bennett stuff, all the, the eclectic weird instruments and soundscapes and stuff, which make this record for me. I think it's just brilliant what he, him and Jeff did. There's so many little nuggets of weirdness to this album. I think that's what made it not take off because people thought it was just too weird. It was more alternative than what has been seen before in sort of Americana or root music. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, they were, they were trying to also get away from the whole alt country thing. Yeah. That was, they were sort of saddled with that label yeah, in those it, days. It was just more experimental. The thing which sort of brought them to a lot of people's attention which was the collaboration with Billy Bragg on those Mermaid Avenue albums, also ended up being completely the direction that they didn't want to go in after being there, which was, as you say, the progression away from the strict Americana, alt-country sort of thing. You know, Jeff Tweedy had really played it safe with AM, still going in that alt-country vein that he'd mined with Uncle Tupelo previously. Jay Farrar stuck with that, and Jeff Tweedy decided, well, we're going to slowly move away. And, you know, being there had elements of it, but went a little bit more poppy and certainly a lot more dark. And then Summer Teeth was Beach Boys-esque, Beatlesque, and lots of little weird bits in between. But they had that interruption when Billy Bragg goes calling and saying, hey, would you like to record some new music using Woody Guthrie lyrics? I mean, why would you knock that back? Probably 
probably from a creative standpoint, that was not what Tweedy and Bennett wanted to do. Yeah, I think the songwriting on Summer Teeth and the pop hooks, which are everywhere, which are all over this record, which I hate to say it is something I don't hear on what mm-hmm. I've heard of the new stuff. I don't hear it on the whole love and Star Wars and stuff. I don't hear the pop hooks there. They're all over this yeah. record. It could have been big very easily. It just didn't happen for them. I feel like if there's anybody that doesn't really know Wilco and they love the Beach Boys or the Beatles, if they love melody and pop hooks and great production, I feel like Summer Teeth is the album for them because yeah. really it it's, has it's, such a diverse output that Summer Teeth is the one that I gravitated to. And I know it's because I really love production and experimental, but really great pop hooks and melody and arrangement. Jen and I are we're very simpatico in our love for pop hooks and great production. I'm with you certainly on uh, the notion of pop hooks, and that's probably as well why Sky Blue Sky is also another <laughs> favorite album of mine. But I certainly do love a lot of what Tweedy and Wilco have done over the years. And the, I think the last few albums, I, I can't speak so much for Road to Joy, although I suspect it is in the same vein as uh, Star Wars and Schmilko in terms of production. They now have settled into a sound, and that may have as much to do with budgetary concerns. I mean, you've got to understand, like, with Summer Teeth, they probably had reprise willing to pour a ton of money at them after the success of Mermaid Avenue and some success with being there, I imagine. So they thought, all right, here, we, we'll give you some money. They couldn't record that album. Even if they had that same set of songs, it wouldn't sound the same if they were recording it today because they wouldn't have that budget, I imagine. The music industry in 1999 was living off the fat of the land. It wasn't to, to, to be for very much longer for the music industry, but that was a glorious time for record executives and recording engineers and things like that. But I read that all of the production tweaks and weirdness and bells and whistles and stuff, that was all done on Pro Tools by Jay Bennett and Jeff Tweedy. In fact, they recorded a bunch of songs at uh, Willie Nelson's studio with the full band. Then they took a break and they did a Mermaid Avenue album with Billy Bragg. When they came back, it was just Jeff and Jay. And Jay and Jeff both played bass and drums on a lot of the songs, on, on at least three or four of the songs on Summer Teeth. And they just didn't invite John Sturrett to... Uh, yeah, and they felt slighted because of it. <laughs> they felt, yeah, here, here's actually a quote from Pat Coomer. Ken Coomer. Is it Ken? He was talking about when they, when they went back in the studio without the, you know, the bassist and the drummer and just did it all themselves. He says, quote, it was a circling of the wagons and John and I felt left out. It was Jeff and Jay feeding off each other, not just musically, but other vices. There was a bonding going on and it didn't just involve music. Jeff didn't go into rehab for addiction to painkillers, but he should have, in my opinion. Jay was taking painkillers, antidepressants, and wasn't in much better shape. The band was different. There wasn't really a band, just two guys losing their minds in the studio. That's really interesting because Kuma was out of the band sometime later. And yet I wonder how much stock I put in his perspective that John Sterrett felt slighted because John's still in the band is the one constant in the band. In my mind, I just sort of would have thought that Sterrett would have said, oh, well, that's fine. That's what they want to do. Call me when you're ready. And Kuma certainly felt on the out. And by the time they got to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, he was pushed out of the band. I think it's really fascinating what Jay and Jeff did on Summer Teeth. Jay Bennett, rest in peace, was not a pleasant guy to be around, but just insanely talented. Yeah. 
I was looking on uh, on Wikipedia, and they listed off all of the instruments that Jay played on that album. Check this out. You know I love a good list. Yeah, sorry. So, I'd, I'd heard that about you. You heard piano, keys, bells, percussion, electric guitar, tambourine, lap steel, synthesizers, drums, farfisa, bass guitar, baritone guitar, or bass six, uh, ebo guitar, banjo, organ, moog, slide bass, and something called a tiple. Is it tipple? Tip tiple? Tiple? If it's from Colombia. It's a 12 string guitar from Colombia. Mm. Yeah. I wish that Jay Bennett was still around so I could play with him in the studio. He still like. <laughs> Yeah, but you, I don't think fun. you could keep up with them as far as drug use. Well, he'd have to do all the drugs for me. <laughs> <laughs> the other problem with the film when it got released is that it could only give the Wilco impression. I think in a way it was not unkind to Jay Bennett at the end of the film, but it showed only the perspective of once he was on the out, we saw this little bit of black and white footage of him being in a small club while Wilco were out playing big venues and oh, maybe not quite stadiums, but they were playing to thousands and he was back in a dark club just playing him and a guitar, playing My Darling. And yet what the film doesn't and can't reveal because it hadn't played itself out yet was that he recorded five albums up until 2009 and I've given a listen to a couple of them The Magnificent Defeat and The Palace at 4am Venus stopped the train They're fantastic. I'm going to make the comparison to Big Star. I mean, everyone goes and says that Alex Chilton was the creative genius of Big Star, and he certainly was brilliant, but I don't think that enough credit is given to Chris Bell. And certainly the difference between sort of the first Big Star album, the second Big Star album, where Chris Bell is no longer part of the band, there's definitely a different sound. And Jay Bennett was like the Chris Bell of Wilco, if you will. And his contribution, it's huge. It's not token by any stretch of the imagination. And when you listen to these solo albums that he put out, that's what you contribute. This is like the story of Hedwig when <laughs> Tommy, Nosis. Tommy Nosis is playing across town and, and everybody in the, in the entire city is, is at his gig and then Hedwig is just trying to play at a sushi restaurant for like <laughs> 10 people. <laughs> a band is not an egoless democracy. So the whole notion of Jeff Tweedy saying, right, this can't work. This is my vision rather than, hey, what are you doing pushing the band around? Jeff, if you're out there listening, I'm sorry. And I'm hoping that you are. He had an ego and he had a vision all his own. Everyone talks about Yankee Hotel Foxtrot as this revolutionary thing and one of the pinnacles of alternative rock, which it is. Jay Bennett, you know, is all over that record too, even though he got fired before it came out. Well, I think he's just listed as, here are the members of Wilco. Oh, and by the way, Jay Bennett contributed to this album. He's listed as almost like a session musician. I read an interview with Jay Bennett from 2008 where he said he was going through a phase of listening to a range of albums in inspiration for whatever happened, I apologize. It also makes sense for the sound of Summer Teeth. So he was listening a lot to Ram by Paul McCartney, Revolver by some Liverpool band, and Hunky Dory by David Bowie. Those are all amazing albums. The context of that to Summer Teeth. So we know where Jay Bennett's headspace was. And that's not to say that Jeff Tweedy 
wasn't a fan of those albums as well. I'm sure he was. But yeah. it, in context of having listened to a couple of those Jay Bennett solo albums and Summer Teeth, we know what his contribution was. And I really stand by this whole notion that he was the Chris Bell of Wilco. Jeff Tweedy, yep, his songwriting chops. But of course, as well, a lot of Summer Teeth is Tweedy-Bennett collaborations in the songwriting world. Those arrangements that Bennett would have had to have had a large part in it. And these solo albums are, are evidence of that. I definitely got to hear that. We've spoken a fair bit there about Jay Bennett's contribution. And even though we've gone and mentioned Ken Coomer by name and spoken a little bit about him, I want to just sort of quickly acknowledge Ken Coomer's contribution as drummer. early albums which are the ones that a lot of people hold closely to their hearts Ken was a large part of that and he was a good and creative drummer Glenn Kochi is the drummer that gives Wilco its sounds now and I think he's an exceptionally creative player almost like a composer in the way how he drums like the drumming on I'm trying to break your heart the opening cut on Yankee Hotel Foxtrot it's incredibly creative and Kuma wasn't necessarily that style of drummer and yet what he does on those early albums and especially a lot on Summer Teeth can't be underestimated and I just sort of wonder what was going through Tweedy's mind where he said, right, you're not the guy for us going forward. I wonder what he heard because Kuma, to me, is is a fantastic and creative and technical player. And he's continued on to do production work and playing on other people's albums over the years. So he's found a life for himself. I'm sure he's not overly heartbroken, but it would have had to have hurt at the time. And I'm still just sort of wondering what would have been Tweedy's thinking. You know, he's solid. He played in Uncle Tupelo as well. And that's right. Yeah. I think the final stage of Uncle Tupelo. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate you know, that had to happen to him, but you can't deny the genius of Glenn Coach. You know, like there had to have been more to Ken's departure than this guy's a better drummer. It had to have been more to it than that. Right. So to Summer Teeth itself, now this is not something I normally bring up on a show, but it's just sort of thinking about the title of the album, Summer Teeth. When we think of Summer, uh, Elvis Costello did this sort of thing with his song, The Other Side of Summer. had this cheery, melodic, up-tempo, happy-sounding song that was spitting vehemently about all that was necessarily wrong with the world. And that album that it came from, Mighty Like a Rose, brought back angry Elvis, and yeah. fat angry Elvis, to the front. <laughs> uh, he grew a beard, put on weight a la Elvis 76, 77. That was an angry album. And Summer Teeth, it's two separate things. Everything I think of Summer is the Californian Summer. Damn you, Beach Boys. Summer is surfboards and waves and the beach and listening to great songs on an am radio shows how old i am but the teeth represents the dark side what this album is about that's completely the most appropriate album title that you could think of for this album because it's so it's such a sunny sound but when you get underneath it there is some really dark stuff happening it is dark and, and i have to say it's much darker than i originally knew about before doing this episode I mean, I, I knew it was somewhat dark. I mean, you can't ignore 
some of those lyrics, like, we dreamed about killing you again last night, and it felt all right to me. You can always hear that, but it kind of just washes over you. It's so pretty, but pretty much every song is dark. Mm -hmm. I want to come to that thematically because I see this as a concept album. I want to talk about that in a moment. But yes, we have this album with Beatlesque harmonies, and there's a lot of those ba-ba-ba-bas all over the album and cheery chords. Even when the songs aren't necessarily up-tempo, when you have a song like In a Future Age, which is deliberately low-key sounding, and that's probably one of the more optimistic songs on the album, but you right. get, can't stand it, which you sort of think, wow, this is a great cheery song, but it's not. <laughs> and, and the crowd often sings along to these songs in concerts, and they have no idea what they're doing. But when you're doing a podcast like this, as you say, and you're going to prepare about it, and you think, what the hell? My goodness, I've never sort of seen this song in this life. And I doubt I'll ever listen to Summer Teeth again in the same way. Yeah, I was really interested in seeing exactly what was happening at that time with Jeff Tweedy in particular and about how he was inspired to write the lyrics of this album because he was away from his wife and his son. And so I feel that sadness of being away from them so strongly with this album, especially on songs like My Darling. So sleep like beautiful boy you know from john lennon except that it's just like even sadder <laughs> with that sad mellotron and i know we're going to talk about nothing's ever going to stand in my way again but there's a part in that song at the very end where the mellotron melody brings back that melody from previous song and i think that was that was just so genius to me the parts where he really is like missing his wife and his son there's the moments in the album that i, I really gravitate to i'm going to put forward a hypothesis i looked at this album not so much as an autobiographical thing I mean, maybe sort of being away from his wife and son put him in a dark frame of mind but I don't necessarily see this album as being biographical I sort of see he wrote a novel and I see it in three distinct parts with a prologue so I'm going to run this by you and see what you think take the conversation in any different ways you can tell me yep no, you're full of shit and here's why but this is how I've gone and mapped this out so I see that this is a story with the prologue is can't stand it so that's like the introductory chapter and then we got three parts and can't stand it is a song from the perspective of a guy who says life offers absolutely no hope the next four or five songs part one we have our protagonist wrestling with drug addiction the second section of the album he's given up the drug addiction he's done that but he can't resolve the depression issues that have been plaguing his life to that point and the final section of the album, the final three or four songs, is he's looking for a resolution. He's looking for a way forward. He acknowledges there's been darkness in his life, and he doesn't quite know how he's going to go forward, but he wants to have some positivity. It does end on not necessarily a high note, but on a more positive note. But it is still, overall, a dark album. But I think it's in very deliberate sections. And if he'd gone and placed these songs in a different order, so if, if say, She's a Jar had been the eighth song on the album, and 
in a future age had been the third song in the album, I would never have come to this conclusion, but I definitely saw these links from one song to the next. I never really gave much thought to the uh, sequencing on this album, but you do make a good point. I hadn't heard a lot of these songs just in a kind of mix for a long time, so I never really considered how they were ordered. But She's a Jar being the second song on the album is a very odd choice because it doesn't sound like it belongs near the top of an album. Jar is the song that kind of hooked me on the album because of that harmonic. I think I gravitate towards the musical elements of the song more than the lyrics. <laughs> so hearing that sad harmonica in it really hooked me. <laughs> so I'm glad it was number two. But it, but it has this sort of feel reaching to the end of something. There's something about that song, normal sequencing, it would be near the end. Maybe it should have. For me, it works because I was happy that it was the second song I heard. Oh yeah, it's a brilliant song. It's one of the best songs on the album. Musically, I can see why a reprise records would have been pulling their hair out thinking you can't put this album so close my god they're going to turn it off words going to get out and no one's going to listen no one's going to buy this album but from a narrative perspective this narrative that i've just gone and invented in my head and i'm sure jeff would smack me at the back of the head and say you don't know what you're talking about but i'm going to go with this let's start off with the prologue though which is can't stand it <laughs> Mellotron on this album because it's not listed as one of Jay Bennett's million instruments. That's definitely a Mellotron that we hear on this song and certainly throughout the album. Maybe you just played uh, it. Yeah, I love we start off the album with this song that has this great groove and that comes as much to Ken Coomer's great drumming on this. It's not exactly like a funk groove, but they definitely do establish a groove and it's almost like this nursery rhyme motif where they have this chromatic motif going on. Da da dum bum, da da dum bum, ba da dum dum. I love that question and response thing. Yeah, I love the organ in it. And also the overdubbing when they went back to Chicago, they added the bells, which I love too. Yep, that's Jay Bennett again. Yeah. The record label wanted them to remix the song for radio, and it didn't do anything on radio even after they had gussied it all up. But I do love what they did with it. Yeah, I remember actually hearing it on radio here, not on commercial radio. I mean, maybe it played there. I wasn't listening to it, but on one of our stations, 3RRR, which is like a public access station, but very popular station. And on the breakfast show, they were playing Can't Stand It. Not ad nauseum, but it was certainly on every morning. I'd already gotten into the band from being there and certainly from Mermaid Avenue but this is like nothing else that they've done before and that song it did the trick it made me go out and buy summer tea I love this song to bits for me the lyric is what establishes the mood and the tone of the rest of the album the way things go you get so low struggle to find your skin hey ho look out below your prayers will never be answered again this is a song for our times is, it, yeah. is that not a song of hope? <laughs> uh, no I don't think that you can add that to your thousand songs of hope then. it's almost like an overture for the album yes you know like 
definitely. All the things that we could go through. Like, you can almost hear it. Like, if this was a musical, can't stand it would be a great overture for it. But that one line, your prayers, or our prayers, will never be answered again. First, it starts off with your prayers, and then he says, right, well, my neither. It's a, it's a collective. We as a society, this is not just my problem. Society is stuffed, and this song, in a way, could not be more topical. It's maybe sort of like pointing the finger at blind faith. So then this time we've gone from the personal to the collective. My life is screwed. Society's dead in the water. Followed by the sound of those two bells that you mentioned, Shannon, which you associate with a wedding celebration. So there's that, he likes to go for that conundrum, you know, life is stuff compared with the musical sound of celebration. I love that clash. Should have been a big hit. Yeah, it should have been, but the kids couldn't go for a song where they were singing, No Love's as Random as God's Love. I can't stand it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> your prayers will never be answered again. He sings it, it's so joyful. It's very deceiving that way. I do remember reading Rolling Stone back in 1999 before I even had heard Summer Teeth. And I do remember this album being on the chart a lot. And so it was hitting some audience. It just wasn't hitting the mainstream. It was never going to be in the land of Britney Spears, you know? I mean, it's not, it wasn't in the same landscape. No, but it was in the same landscape. I mean, I know that, Ben, you're a huge fan of Weezer. We both love Fountains of Wayne and Teenage Fan Club. And I mean, okay, these weren't like the bands that were filling arenas, but there certainly was an audience for bands like these. I want to clarify, I'm a fan of 90s Weezer. There were these bands which had their own movement, and I still tend to think that we place too much emphasis on the fact that a band has to sell millions of copies, otherwise they're considered a failure. And certainly the era of 90s, which was an era of business, and, and once again, I want to recommend Sean Katz's film. It certainly put that era into perspective, you know, the rise and fall of alternative rock. It became a sort of thing where they think, oh, wow, this so-called alternative shit is what the kids are buying, right? We'll throw millions of dollars at it. Yeah, we can sell anything but an album sells 14 million on its first go around and the second album sells 7 million oh that's a failure <laughs> well that's a product of the time yeah. it doesn't happen anymore wow we sold 10,000 downloads well woohoo we've gone gold <laughs> hey gold is amazing these days to sort of bring in the next group of songs I mean and please speak as much as you want to about any of these as individual songs but I see the next group of songs as a collective she's a jar a shot in the arm we're just friends and I'm always in love and nothing's ever going to get in my way again. My favorite of the album. For the last few years, I haven't done this show as a track-by-track track thing and I still sort of don't want to look at this as a, this is what happened on this song, this is what happened on that song, but sort of in a way have to touch in at least a little bit on each song because, as I said, this is three parts of a story, maybe a triptych, if you will. And she's a jar. Everyone sort of makes a big thing about she begs me not to hit her. I don't actually sort of see that song as about about that. violence on a, a violence on on a person. I know that his wife didn't like that lyric too. I read that. He was inspired by Henry Miller. He was reading a lot of Henry Miller at the time. I would be so mad if my husband wrote a song and had that lyric. <laughs> but it's fictional. I don't care. <laughs> Listening to this song and certainly then put everything else like the, the next few songs into sharp relief as to I saw them completely differently. There's this section of the song where he sings. The tracks of the trains are 
about drug injection this is about heroin when i forget how to sing what you please bring that flash to shine and turn my eyes red so when he does get to the end of the song she's a jar with a heavy lid my pop quiz kid a sleepy kiss at a pretty wall with feelings hid she begs me not to hit her is that about physical violence or is this about begs me not to have another hit? Oh. I, I mean, I used to, like everyone else, oh yeah, wow, this is a song about domestic violence. But in contrast of looking at the wider view of the song, I don't think that this is about domestic violence, especially in contrast with the next three or four songs, which I also read into them as about drug. Well, there's definitely no ambiguity in the, the violence that you hear later in uh, Via Chicago. Right. The line in She's a Jar, you know, she begs me not to hit her. You can definitely construe that any way you want. That is not you know, fictional or otherwise. It's not an allusion to, to violence. There's ambiguity there, but there's no ambiguity in Via Chicago. So there, there is no ambiguity in Via Chicago, but when we get to that, I'll explain what I read into that. It's not above Jeff Tweedy to write a song about fictional violence against somebody. The next song on the album is A Shot in the Arm. Yes, you're up all night. It's mine The pillow well Covered your eyes I did hear one opinion that said, no, shot in the arm, it's not about drug use, that's about some level of encouragement. But I'm saying no, in context of what I've just sort of read into, she's a jar. The ashtray says you're up all night when you went to bed with your darkest mind. Maybe all I need is a shot in the arm, something in my veins. Really? Is that song supposed to be about getting a little bit of encouragement? It's a drug song. <laughs> There's a drug song, and that's why I'm making this connection. That one's not ambiguous. Something in my veins bloodier than blood. Yikes. And yet, coming back to what we were talking about before, this is a cheerful-sounding song. This is a pop song. <laughs> yes, I know, that's the thing. Yes, it is. There's so many of these songs that it's just heavy. Sound, it like sounds this. so cheerful, and then you just, even for a second, pay attention to the lyrics, and you pick any lyric in that song, and it's all dark. It's so repetitive in a good way. Like, you never lose interest, but he sings, maybe all I need is a shot in the arm, like, 12 times. <laughs> it's just very clear-cut, and it's just very plaintive. Right, but that repetition is also a great pop hook. Mm. Uh-huh. I wasn't so sure how crazy I was about that musically at the time because this playing around with, I guess, those retro-sounding synths on that song and that sort of put me off a little bit. But in the end, I thought, no, it's a fantastic song. So I don't have problems with any of the arrangement choices on this album. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> I think it's all brilliant. The next song in that drug quintet, We're Just Friends. Forget the implications Infatuations end If love's so easy Was it hard? I can't imagine 
I might be stretching this, but I have to, to keep this thing going. If love's so easy, why is it hard? I can't imagine ever being a part, but I'm reading into that. The whole notion of him wanting to give up, it comes to his head. He knows that his mind is messed up and his body is messed up with his drug use. And he's basically sort of talking to himself, I can't really imagine wanting to stop. I can't imagine wanting to give up. Musically, this is probably in alignment. It is slower. It's not a shot in the arm. There's something else that you hear on We're Just Friends that you also hear on Via Chicago and a bunch of other songs on this record that, again, I don't really hear in a lot of the newer stuff. You hear real emotional, raw honesty to his vocals. Yes. To, you know, it's heartbreaking hearing his voice in that song. It's like wonderfully ragged. Right, yeah. Well, he was still addicted to uh, painkillers at the time, wasn't he? It shows through on a lot of these songs mm-hmm. and it's exhilarating, but it's also heartbreaking. Yeah. On this song, he really is talking to himself. He's trying to convince himself, you know, try and talk me out of giving up, make some coffee, hold me up, but I promise we're just friends. You know, he's saying, I can give this up any time. I'm not addicted, but he's really just fooling himself, not fooling anyone else. We've all heard that friends, even if they're trying to quit cigarettes, like I can quit any time. Heard that many times. I guess I was stretching it a bit on this song, but the one line, why I wonder is my heart full of holes? And I was thinking her heart or arm and the feeling goes, but my hair keeps growing. Will I get the sun or a big wheeled wagon? I'm bragging, I'm always in love. So that's the other thing about Tweedy is on the latter day stuff and certainly on Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, a lot of his lyrics become very obscure and you really do have to stretch to read into what you read into them. He, he doesn't often write, certainly not nowadays, a song about, well, I woke up this morning and I had myself a particularly good cheese sandwich. A cup of coffee was great. I said hello to the postman. Jesus, coronavirus is a bit of a drag, isn't it, folks? He doesn't do lyrics like that. There's a little lyric in there about violence again. When I let go of your throat, sweet throttle. Really dark place on these songs. Under the guise of really great power pop. <laughs> Just incredible. That synth ropes you in, and then you're like, wait, what is he saying? Did he he just say that? Not every songwriter, not every author, not every creative type, they might sort of have to think in a dark place, but they're not necessarily all serial killers and muggers and murderers. No, I would never suggest that Jeff Tweedy's a violent person at all. It's just, it shows up in this period of his life. It was just there, you know? And I wonder, even with this song, would it be as good of a song if the lyrics were brighter and cheerier? No. I mean, I don't know. I think maybe it would be. I think you could replace the lyrics on this song. Just because I'm saying that, I think on this whole album, the material, you could easily replace it. And the musicality of it is so good that no matter what they're no matter what they're singing about and the performance of it, it's just so emotional and so raw, but so beautiful and melancholy and cheerful and all these things wrapped all together, kind of swirling around that for me, you could take the lyrics out and they could be singing about anything. I would still probably really love this album. I'm trying to pick, I can't really pick. So it. I love it despite the material and 
but I also love it because of the material. I guess I can only hear the songs the one way. Lyrically, this is a song that I guess I'm fairly ambiguous on, but I'm just sort of dragging for those couple of lines to be still part of this first group of drug-related songs. But what I don't think is ambiguous is the next song, which I like it concludes in a, I'm going to give this up. Nothing's ever going to stand in my way again. This is a song of hope. Yeah. Definitely. I think I'm going to put this one out today as a song of hope. Well done. We'll quickly digress for a second. So just tell the listeners out there who might not be familiar with it what your whole concept about the Thousand Songs of Hope is. After the election of Donald Trump, I was just really just in a bad place. And I think I heard Do Yourself a Favor by Stevie Wonder. And it suddenly just hit me that I want to do this. There's a lot of songs that put me in a good mood and give me hope. I was like, We're gonna, this is before he became president. It was after the election. Though. I was like, this is going to be a really rough four years. And by the way, I had no idea how much worse it was going to be than what I thought it was. But anyway, so for the podcast, I thought it would be fun to see if I could do it. As all-time top 10, I've been posting these three, four, five times a week. And I'm up into the upper 600s now. Wow. I was trying to time so it could wrap up right as the next election hits, but I don't think I'm going to make it. But it'll, it's fine if it bleeds over to Mr. Gibson himself to get thrown out of office. It's just something I've been doing for a while, just for myself, but I think some people are appreciating it. So you're making this as a playlist. I mean, I often see your posts on Facebook, but you're making this as a Spotify playlist as well? Oh, yeah. Follow me on Twitter. Follow All Time Top 10 on Twitter, Facebook, whatever, and, and you'll get the, the latest one. And we're almost up to 700 now. I'll put a link once again in the show notes to that. We all need some hope. Thank you. Uh, so Nothing's ever going to stand in my way again. We found a way to make some sense out of this mess. Let's test, but I believe I guess it's all we need. Your latest song of hope. I think a great song of hope has to acknowledge the darkness. It's not walking on sunshine. That's not a song of hope. This is a song about life has been troubled, life has been problematic, but I'm going to find a way out of this. I'm going to look forward and there's waste the days, waste the nights, which could have been wasted days, wasted nights. Try to downplay being uptight. Oh, you're right, but I believe a kiss is all we need. I'm a bomb regardless, but we'll find a way. Nothing's ever going to stand in our way again. Just like in Can't Stand It, where your prayers will never be answered again to our prayers will never be answered again. He's gone from the personal to the collective. He's doing the same thing in this song. He's gone from nothing's ever going to stand in my way again to no, I'm going to embrace us all. Nothing's going to stand in our way again. There's still this ominous feeling because when you get to that last chord of the chorus, it's not a major chord. Like you, you almost think like, oh, it's going to go to a major. No, it resolves to the minor. So there's still a lot of darkness in there. There's that cynicism that has to shine through just a little bit. Yeah. Hope is not a guaranteed conclusion. It doesn't mean because I hope, life will get better. It, it's, I can't go the way I've been going. So it's sort of uncertain. We don't know. And certainly in a good story, you don't give away the ending too soon. And that's what's happening here. It's yeah. like, well, we're going to do this, but we don't know how it's going to go. And I think it's actually sort of like a perfect segue to the second part of the album. If we're talking about the same character, things aren't going smoothly. We got songs like Pie Hold and Sweet, How to Fight Loneliness via Chicago and Every Little Thing. There are dreams we have shared and I still care and I still love you but you know 
sweet is a song about the fear of getting close again to someone who is hurt, how to fight loneliness. How to fight loneliness. Smile all the time. Depressing sentiment. The song basically if you aren't happy, don't ever show it. Just go along with the throng. Just smile all the time. It's a beautiful arrangement, and with the music, just has a hint of menace. That's part of the theme. This second part of the album, the first part was about trying to resolve a personal issue with drug addiction, as I read into it. The second part, it is about his depression, self-loathing. Yeah, I feel like that's a really introspective song. Like, there's reverse guitar parts all over it that make you feel like there's little thoughts kind of swirling Uh around. Again, I don't have any issue with any of the arrangement choices on here. I think Jay and Jeff did an incredible job of just coloring the songs with all these little things that evoke a feeling like that. It's sort of sad to think that what they produce such a, a beautiful work of art, such a terrific recording, to create great art, at least in this case, ended up fracturing the relationship with the band. <laughs> Maybe even worse with another favorite band of mine from the 90s, which I guess this could be a good companion piece to the band Jellyfish, their album Spilt Milk, which to me is pop genius. There was fracturing in that band and it's one of those rare bands Bands that probably won't ever step on the reunion circuit. So many other bands have done that. Oh, it's just sad. <laughs> some of those cuts run deep, you know. Yeah, yeah. I dreamed about killing you again last night, and it felt all right to me. Dying on the banks of Embarcadero skies, I sat and watched you. Chicago. Totally fictional, right? <laughs> Jeff's wife didn't like him. Uh, she's just doing a murder ballad? Yeah, a murder ballad, basically. Here's my question. Is this murder or is this suicide? I'm not treating this flippantly or anything like that, but reading into this song, given the concept of the last couple of songs, the songs are about self-doubt. And if we're carrying it onto this song, I dreamed about killing you. It could be, well, he's not saying the word me, but it could equally be where he sings the hope I had in a notebook full of white dry pages was all I tried to save. That made me sort of think that this was less about killing someone else, but more about himself, or at least giving up on any hope or any dreams that he had. One of these days, and turn on your TV to watch a man with a face like mine being chased down a busy street when he gets caught i won't get up and i won't go to sleep this seems to me like it's more self-reflective rather than anything that he's thinking about killing someone else it's to me not as black and white i would buy that i would buy you know sort of a suicide intention with the sun but it's so weird how you hear these lyrics i'm coming home i'm coming home via chicago it's so sad and you it's not so tired but there's also a little bit of hope with that like maybe there's release in that I can't quite figure it out. It's just very ominous. I'm coming home. Maybe by that point, he's sort of starting to think, I'm going to try to find a way out of this. I'm coming back to where I was many years ago. Maybe back then I was a happy, ambitious, loving life sort of person before my life came dark. There's a production choice near the end of this song, right around just before that part where he says, I'm coming home, where it's just, it sounds like a mess. Yes. It sounds like, to to me, that sounds like somebody just destroying a room that they're in, in a fit of frustration, and then coming out of it singing, I'm coming home, I'm coming home. Like He had something he 
just had to get out of him, you know, and then he does it. You hear it manifested in that crazy. I don't know what, how do you describe that? Part well, where it's all just, I mean, I've listened to this song hundreds of times, but only when thinking about it for the podcast that it occurred to me that what's happening. Brilliant. Well, you said he's destroying a room. We got the rest of the band starting to play sloppily. And then Ken Kuma, he's not even in sync with the rest of the band. He's just sort of hitting a snare drum, hitting a cymbal. It's like our character is throwing books off the shelf, destroying the room before the band comes into sync again. I'll make it back one of these days you turn on your TV To watch a man with a face like mine being chased down a busy street When he gets caught I won't get Talk about cathartic, right? Exactly. Very much cathartic. A very cathartic song. (laughs) I sort of make a link back as well to the first song on the album, which was Can't Stand It. This song could have almost been called I Can't Fight It. His character, he wanted to find a better life for him after he's determined, right, I'm going to give up the drug addiction, but this is him drying out. It's difficult for him. But then the following song is yet another sort of a song of hope, every little thing. This would be the last section of the album, right? Well, this would be the, the last song of this section. So I note that the first section ended up with a song of hope in Nothing's Ever Gonna Stand In My Way Again. And every little thing, the last song of this section ends as a song of hope. And this is one yeah. of those rare cases on the album where we get a pop-sounding melody. And I reckon Jeff Tweedy must have been a big fan of Teenage Fan Club because I reckon he's taken a leaf out of their book. This is very much like a TFC song. He's singing in this way. I should have been listening to every word you said. Oh, what have I been missing? Wishing that you were dead. He's saying, what the hell was I thinking? Um, <laughs> yeah, he was, he's responding to the previous song. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't mean to be so just disturbing so far from home oh what have i been learning by being all alone he misses his wife and his son he's on tour he can't deal with it anymore every little thing just tears you apart yeah you know what this is actually the first time in our conversation where i've sort of seen your little (laughs) concept playing out the the pedal steel and the synth interweaving like they're so high in the mix that they're almost like these voices that are competing with his voice almost like they're trying to drown him out it's almost like Maybe it's like guilt or shame or something is happening there with those mm. little things, or maybe they're trying to propel him into seeing how things should be. I do love the sound of the pedal steel. I'm wondering if this is the last time that they ever used pedal steel. I mean, it was sort of a feature. They even had like a specific pedal steel play on the first couple of albums, but he's no longer part of the band. That was more in a country context. Here we have it in a pop song, and it's, it's just a nice sweetener for this song. Yeah, absolutely love how it is an optimistic song, but once again, it's acknowledging the darkness that has come before. Yeah, maybe you're onto something, Morris. Woohoo! I had too much time on my hands <laughs> to think about this, man. <laughs> too much. Um.
My Darling, which is the next song on the album, is an outlier. We'll come back to that. The remaining part of the album, and I'm only sort of going to go to in a future age. I mean, I know that the local edition of the album, I don't know whether it was for you in America, but they had a song called Candy Floss and a different version of Shot in the Arm that finished the album. So they're just like, you know, whatever your bonus tracks. But in a future age is where the album properly ends. So the remaining songs on the album, which are When You Wake Up Feeling Old, Summer Teeth, and In a future age once he's made the resolution i think i'm going to be in a good place i have hope for a better future and yet there's still as i said before acknowledging the darkness and you know, before any process of healing can begin you have to ask the hard questions as to what you want your life to be like afterwards and when you wake up feeling old is that sort of song when you wake up It's jaunty. It sort of sounds to me like a little bit of a soft shoe shuffle. It sounds like a crooner style song by like Billy Joel or something. Well, When You Wake Up Feeling Old is one song in this song that does seem to me to be a little bit autobiographical. I'm wondering about it's whether Jeff trying to come to terms with any level of fame. He says, there are so many things I must leave alone. Some strange person is calling you their home. I mean, I wonder if that's as much about fans saying, wow, your music meant everything to me. Will you sign my autograph? I listen to this album. It's the best thing in my life. I wonder what that must be like for a famous musician to hear your songs took me out of a dark time or your songs are the best thing ever. And you know, well, I, I did this because either A, it's my day job or B, it was therapy for me. I can't relate to it relating to you. Anyway, I see that as much as part of his protagonist's ongoing answering the hard questions about where he wants his life to be. Yeah, and then that sounds very autobiographical for Jeff Tweedy being on tour and just not being able to relate. So this sounds like something that was very realistic. I want to ask you, Shannon, as a songwriter, has anyone ever come up to you and said, well, that Lovers and Poets song or that song that you wrote for this solo <laughs> album, that really meant something in my life that was personal to me? As Yeah, well, a lot of times people will tell me about how an experience that they had, they will always associate it with the song, which is a really cool feeling. In particular, I had a fan tell me that he went hiking in Machu Picchu and he was climbing an Aztec pyramid <laughs> and he was listening to my song Sunrise while the sun was rising. that song he said he felt so renewed and like so much energy from that he would end up telling me that story every time i saw him and he'd come to our shows yeah sometimes it's very specific um it has to do with a a lyric that they relate to very strongly or a lot of times it's just an association i heard the song i was driving in the car with my seven-year-old kid and (laughs) and we both cried (laughs) so it it just depends but every experience the way everybody interprets the songs is, is completely different and sometimes it's not what i intended like sometimes I'll write a song that I won't feel that strongly was biographical to me, but maybe I write it for other people to have that strong feeling. 
So usually I try to write it so it's more universal uh-huh. instead of personal, just so that more people can identify and associate with it. Like I usually try to not include gender or specific places or names because I want as many people to be able to relate to a song as possible. Uh-huh. So I feel Jeff Tweedy kind of does that to hear. Like, is he talking about a person or is he talking about drugs? Like you can't tell sometimes, which is kind of neat. Mm. We've been saying all along, there is some level of ambiguity. My interpretation, I'm sure if word gets around to the Wilco camp, he'll say, what the fuck is this guy on? It seemed like a good interpretation to me. I remember once a film lecturer once saying, it doesn't matter what the creator's intentions were. If you say something about a work of art, be it a bit film or a song, and you can back it up, you can justify it, then it's still valid. So I'm going to go with that interpretation. Like I said before, I listened to this album quite a bit. I listened to the songs that were just, they were in a mix. I never really listened to it as a whole. I mean, I did, but not very often. And your little uh, concept is, swayed me it has a flow to it that i never saw before but the overriding takeaway that i get got from this experience of doing studying this album more deeply is it is darker way darker than i realized oh, yeah. i knew it was somewhat dark i had no idea like even the poppiest songs with a couple of exceptions like nothing's ever going to stand my way again are dark but i like how the album ends with in a future age genuine day will come when the wind decides to run and shakes the stairs that stab the wall and turns a page in the future age. It sort of goes full circle. I alluded to this earlier where we get this very quiet, very self-reflective sort of melody. This probably, you could also add this to your song of hope. A genuine day will come when the wind decides to run and shakes the stairs that stab the wall and turns a page in the future age. Let's turn our prayers to outrageous dares and mark our page in a future age. The beginning of the album, our prayers will never be answered again. That's just an outright rejection of everything. This is, uh, well, let's not go with prayers and good wishes. Let's turn those prayers of hope into actually doing something to outrageous dares. I like that at the beginning, it's more like if you pray, well, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. This one is more like a Paul McCartney, we can work it out. Let's try it this way. Let's turn our prayers to outrageous dares. Let's do something to make life better. This for me, I mean, notwithstanding the, the bonus tracks, this for me is where the album ends. And I think it's a beautiful way to end this overall concept concept to end this story this is if it were a book this is where the book would end or where the film would end i'm glad that my assertion that summer teeth is my favorite local album is only being enhanced by going into it deeper mm. so can we talk about the bonus track candy club that not on the album properly no idea it may have been recorded as a b-side i mean i don't think it ended up as a b-side but it was maybe one of those songs that even jeff thought well i mean i'm not saying he had this concept that we've been speaking about in mind but he may have had a concept for the album but well it's too good a song to let languish in the vaults 
but it, it just wasn't it does, an album anymore. I mean, musically, it definitely fits in with the rest of the, the album. And we've been speaking yeah. about Beatlesque and Beach Boys touches. Uh, but he even sounds like a Wilson brother when he sings this 100%. Song. The greatest song that the Beach Boys never recorded. There's a podcast for you. Top 10 Beach Boys-esque. Ooh. We've, we did we've done the Beatlesque, so why not? Yeah, I really like the song just because it does sound like the Beach Boys. It's just very, there's something 60s-esque about it. And it still appears like it's actually part of the album. Like you can't see that it's like, oh, a bonus track. It doesn't say that. Anyway, I, like I said, <laughs> I'm so delighted to to know that when I dig even deeper into the album, it's uh, even better than I, than I thought in the first place. Before we finish off, I want to just quickly go over the outlier of the album, which was My Darling. didn't sort of see this as fitting in thematically with the story that I saw in the record and yet it's probably one of the album's true highlights. And I love the sound of, I'm not sure, well we're speaking about the prominence of the Mellotron on this album, but is this a Moog or a Farfisa that's on this? Well I know that there's the Mellotron, I'm trying to think of if there's the... I read that it's about his son. This is one of those songs where it is what it seems about and yet musically it's very intense. Does it sound like there's a hint of darkness in this to you. This is not like Beautiful Boy by John Lennon, which I think you might have mentioned earlier on. Yeah, but it's like a dark version of that, like you're growing up without me and it's really sad. <laughs> yeah, grow up now, my darling. Please don't you grow up too fast and be sure, darling, to make all the good times last because we made you, my darling, with the love in each of our hearts. We were a family, my darling, right from the start. I'm glad that this song <laughs> is on this album, but it really is an outlier from everything else that I hear. Given that, I think it was in the film where we see Jay Bennett post expulsion out of Wilco. Isn't that what he's singing? If this is such a personal Jeff Tweedy lyric, why would Jay Bennett be singing that? That's really unusual. That's strange, but he does get co-writing credit on it. I imagine he didn't pick the lyrics. Any final thoughts on Wilco's Summer Tea? We've sort of gone in a lot of different directions. Given another spin, you might find that you know everyone out there that says that it's you know that Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is the be all end all of Wilco in existence. Give Summer Teeth another listen. There's a lot more layers to it than you might think. I have this conversation I get into with friends now and again about Radiohead's mm. discography and comparing it to the Beatles. Pablo Honey is like the mop top era. The Benz is Revolver and Rubber Soul and OK Computer is Sgt. Pepper. You know, all this psychedelic color thing. I feel Wilco sort of has the same thing. AM and being there are the mop top era when they graduate to Summer Teeth, which is Revolver and Rubber Soul, and then you get to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which is Sgt. Pepper. Revolver is probably my favorite Beatles album, and The Benz is my favorite Radiohead album, so it fits right in line with that. It's a huge leap forward from being there, and it's not as universally 
phrased as Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, but neither is Revolver from Sgt. Pepper. I think you raise a good point there. I wish we would have sort of thought to discuss that earlier. There's been a lot of talk about Summer Teeth being a transitional album. I don't see it as that way, and it's obvious that you don't either. It's its own beast. They work their way to Summer Teeth. It's not like, well, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, we need to go further. It's like, no, we need to go different. Yeah, that's the reason why we didn't talk about it, because I don't believe that theory. You know, I don't, I don't subscribe to it. I think it's its own thing, and it's beautiful. And every bit is complex and should be as lauded as much as Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, in my opinion. And certainly, I think for people who sort of find that albums like Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, or certainly A Ghost Is Born, well, I don't get what the praise is behind this band, but you go search out Summer Teeth. And I like to think musically that if you're a, a fan of any sort of pop music, it would appeal to everyone. If you're maybe too cool for school, you'd say, oh, no, A Ghost Is Born is definitely the one really, really great album. But this yeah. is a, an album full of melodic pop hooks. That was your big thing at the start of the show. I mean, yes, it is. They're singing about very dark subject matter. But even if you don't sing the words, even if you're sort of going about your day, you're humming these melodies. It's brilliant in that fashion. I mean, look, I do think that Tweedy has come up with some great melodies in the years that followed. And I do love The Whole Love. It's probably my favorite of the latter day discography, mm. I, because I think that album sort of is a good summary of everything that they've done to that point. There's some experimental stuff, a little bit of weird stuff, and there's some pop stuff and even just some being there alt folky sort of stuff. To me, that's a great summary of everything that they've done. And I love that record. But certainly Summer Teeth is a pinnacle in their career. I agree. I think Summer Teeth is just a really special record. I love the innovation that they had in the studio, the instrumentation, the way they used it. It was just a special record. And it was much like Revolver. It was Lennon and McCartney getting along, mm. working together to create great art. Is that with Jay and Jeff? That concludes our discussion, listeners, on Wilco's Summer Teeth. And as I said at the start of the show, from the time of recording this, we've just celebrated the 21st anniversary of the album. So a good a time as any to go buy the CD, if you can find one, buy the record, download it on Spotify, whatever way you get your music. Just get music. This is a highlight. Especially people need to go out and support musicians right now on Bandcamp and stream their music on Spotify, buy their merch, because no band is touring right now everything has been cancelled so bands are trying to figure out how to make a living <laughs> yeah that was up until now touring was really the only way they were going to make a living now they can't even do that one of the things that I've been reading about in a couple of music forums over the last day or so I wonder whether this gathers any steam whether people will do a pay per view streaming over the net I mean I know that a popular thing here for the last few years and I'm sure it's been over in the states has been lounge room backyard gigs so you can get a reasonably well known band and some obscure bands who will offer you, you basically sell tickets to 50 of your friends and they'll come and the band will come and play a show in your backyard and in your living room and have a few drinks with you afterwards but this may be the next thing so yeah we'll do a show for you and your mates but you're gonna have to stream it on your 
100-inch yeah. color television or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to be live-streamed, I'm afraid. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's... Where uh, times get tough, people hopefully they, they find some innovation because and essentially for musicians, if that's all that they do, if that's their only source of income, they're going to have to find that innovation. And I'm really pleased to see that this early and with what's going on, that people are actually sort of coming up with these ideas. So I'd like to hope that it doesn't get rejected out of hand. and That'd be great. Time will tell. One thing that we can say to you is that podcasts are not going away. Podcasts are here. And if your day is made even a little bit brighter by us talking about murder and uh, <laughs> death, then we've achieved our job. So keep listening to All Time Top 10 and Love That Album and See Here and any other wonderful podcast out there. I should put in a plug. Love That Album is part of the Pantheon podcast family. So we've got at least 30 podcasts in there. I spoke about a few of them last time. Just go to rockandrollarchaeology.com or Google Pantheon Podcasts and see any of the 30-odd podcasts that we have. And all we do is music discussion-related podcasts. Please jump on that. A lot of great stuff. They're doing some magnificent thing and music podcasts are now becoming a thing. True crime is going the way of the dodo. Music discussion podcasts are where it's at. <laughs> That's worth that. Yeah. That's correct. So, um, so, yeah, give Pantheon a look in and certainly go to All Time Top 10 and search that out in your podcast app of choice. And as Ben said earlier on, they're going for the 400th episode, which by the time this comes out will already be online. So what will that have been? Top 10 controversial band member replacements. Right. Okay. That'll be a controversial episode because I'm sure you'll get some people say, that wasn't that controversial. That was for the better. But I look forward to, well, to having a listen to The more of those kind of comments I get, the more I realize I'm doing something. <laughs> Pissing people off. Yes. That's what, we, yes. that's what we live to do. We don't we don't live to do that. But if it happens, it means we're doing something. Right. And next week, we'll be recording all-time top 10 cathartic albums. And yes. this was um, just doing my research for this. I've come up with nine albums. So how I'm going to reduce that to five, I don't know. Work it out. Uh, yeah, I'll work it, and I'm hoping to come up with a tenth <laughs> so I can say, I've got two lists of five, so maybe we'll go for a volume two scenario. I do that every week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so looking forward to that. Thanks for having us, Morris. It's been my absolute pleasure, and it's been not only too long since I've had either of you, but I can't believe that I've been going this long. We've been friends this long, and I've never had the two of you on the one show. In a way, this yep. has been a first, and let it not be as long before we do that once again. Yes. What I want to do is though, quickly just sort of talk about what will be happening Happening next month. This show's come out in March, so April 2020. I'll be having back on the show brilliant blues guitar player, leader of the Bondi Cigars, Shane Pacey. And I really wanted to cover this album on the show. And Shane listens to everything. And I thought, if this is an album that no one else knows, Shane will know it. An album from 1969 from the folk rock supergroup Pentangle. And the album is Basket of Light. So I sent a note to Shane saying, you'd be familiar with this album. And he said, of course. Shane's my man. When no one else knows it, Shane does. <laughs> I'm looking forward to uh, discussing that album. I can't believe I've been doing this for like nearly nine years and we've not done this album. But um, look forward to doing that next month if you don't know it listen to it it's a work of brilliance when i say folk rock very very different from uh, steel i span and fairport convention so i'm sure that'll be part of the conversation next month as well all right until we speak again please listen to podcasts listen to some great albums 
don't think of killing anyone again next night, <laughs> even if it feels all right to you. Just be nice to each other. We're in living in difficult times and it would just be wonderful if we look after each other. Don't go rushing to grab the last 10,000 toilet rolls off the supermarket shop. That's just <laughs> fucking stupid. Just really just give someone you love a hug. Love toilet paper. Give someone, a, give someone the gift of toilet paper. The gift that keeps toilet paper. <laughs> And, and until uh, we speak again, look after yourselves and be good to each other. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.